Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and John McManus, of course. Um, and, uh, well, um, uh, there's, lo- there's lots to talk about. We haven't we haven't chatted in a while, have we, chaps? So there's a kind of feeling of a reconvening, and uh, Jim's been on his adventures, yeah. I've been on mine. Uh, so, uh, w- w- well, where should, where should we begin? W- w- where do you want to start, John? Let's talk about Jim's adventures. I, 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 don't, I don't want to loiter on it, because I'm conscious we've done quite a lot on Italy recently, but I, it's just, just, you know, I was sending you stuff over while I was uh, over there, and, and you were both coming back with quite interesting comments. I'm just going to show you something. Obviously, you know, wasn't picking up two really big bits of shrapnel, but, you know, there's there's one. It's, it's probably from some kind of bit of a mortar or whatever mm. but i've also found a, a mortar fin uh where did i put that mm. oh yeah here it is and this stuff uh, this is so this is all from monte samucro which for those who don't know this is when you when you're moving up up the leg of italy on the terranian coast side the western side it's about you know 70 miles south of rome um and and the the mountains kind of narrow to this little valley this little valley floor which is known as the mignano gap and in the bottom of it you've got this sort of low slug of a of, of a long thin mountain called monte lungo then there's monte rotunda which is a sort of round conical little mountain then you've got these two towering peaks these huge massives and on the right hand on the right hand side as you're looking towards rome is monte samucro and nestling on its lower slopes is San Pietro, you know, which was turned into a famous documentary film mm-hmm. by John Houston, was fought very hard for by the 509th, if I remember rightly, Parachute Infantry Regiment and the 36th Texan Division. Yep. And on the left-hand side, you've got Monte Camino, which is the highest point, and then one of the kind of sort of sub-points, is, uh, sub-peaks is Monte Dulla Defensa. You know, these were incredibly hard fought for in... November and mainly December 1943. So before they've even got to Casino, there is this monstrous defensive network is known as the Bernhard Line or the Winter Line if you're, if you're American. And you know, when you're looking on Google Earth and when you're looking from the valley floor, when you're looking from the Mignano Gap, they, they look monstrous, but of course they look quite smooth sided. Only when you're on the top of these things do you realize there's lots of, you know, saw edge ridges, plunging vertical drops, huge boulders, little outcrops, nips and tucks, little sort of knolls within the kind of larger complex of the mountain. And from the top of Monte Samucro, you can just see forever. I mean, you know, you can look back and there's Venafro and the upper Volturno Valley, and you can see all the way, virtually all the way to Caserta and beyond. I mean, you know, you can see for forever. And then in front of you, you've got, there's Casino. You can see the monastery on the end of the Monte Casino Massive and towering above it is Monte Cara. And there's the Liri Valley, this sort of promised land that you can get to once you've got through this winter line and then the 
and then the Gustav line. And on the other side, you can see Monte Camino, Monte della de Defensa, etc. And down in the Mignano Gap, there's Monte Lungo, Monte Rotondo, there's Mignano, the little town itself. So you can just see it all, and you can see how it all fits together. And what struck me, and also the other thing is, is, is obviously this is the scene for the really famous Ernie Pyle, the most uh, famous Ernie oh, Pyle Captain d- dispatch. The Captain dispatch, Wasco. Yeah. You know, I was there the night they brought down Captain Wasco. Yeah. You know, we're at the foot of a mule trail. And there's the mule trail, and there's the little farmhouse. And whether it's the farmhouse, it doesn't matter. But the point is it gives you a very clear picture of, of what it probably did look like. And then you add it to the photographs of, of the day. And it just suddenly all gels together. It just all fits together. And the thing that struck me, and I found, I found just, I, I just couldn't get over it, is this is absolutely brutal. I mean, <laughs> to get to the summit is just, I just do not know how they did it. You know, Incredible. it's not it's not like you're, you're, I mean, you know, certain parts you would absolutely need ropes and crampons and stuff. But for the most part, you could get to the summit you know, on on your own two feet, you know, occasionally using a hand, but 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 without too much difficulty. But you're being canalized into that, which that makes it very easy to defend. So they do actually take it, I think, on the night of the ninth, tenth of December. But then they've got to clear these further knolls, and to get to one of the knolls, you've got to go down this really steep sleep full of boulders and rocks and all the rest of it. Then there's a sort of grassy saddle, and then it rises up again. And that's what you've got. And, you know, and the Germans are on top of that. And every which way you look at it, there's is clearly mortars, machine gun fire, all the rest of it. And on the on your left-hand side, as you're tacking down towards this one, it's a really, really steep drop. And everywhere, without any effort whatsoever, we were pick finding bits of mortars, shrapnel, the odd button, all this kind of stuff. I mean, that it was wild. just incredible. And then suddenly you'd see clearly where, you know, a shell had come in. And you'd see... Suddenly, all the rocks were really small, and you're just—you know—there's no soil there at all. So there's lots of evidence of Sangers and German defences making use of the existing rocks, clearing other rocks out of the way, making a little wall. You know, you know, you could see where they'd have been snuck in behind a kind of a, a, a little kind of a big boulder or something like that. You know, it's totally obvious. You, you absolutely—it could be nothing else other than kind of sort of man-made in a shelter, and it was just completely eye-opening. I mean, really? And and you think, well, the Germans aren't trained in mountain warfare. The 36th Texans aren't. And let's not forget the 36th Texans, their first time in combat in, in World War II is on Salerno. They've then done all that. Then they've come up to the winter line. They've been battling all the way through that. They have this absolute slog to get into San Pietro. And then they have a small breather, and then they're kind of crossing the Rapido. Yeah, they're a, they're a hard luck outfit. I mean, it, you know, your first combat is Salerno, where you're kind of overmatched on some levels. Uh, in an amphibious operation that is done sort of on the shoestring. Uh, you've dealt with that counterattack there. Now you're slugging through this horrible terrain where you're going to be the whole winter, uh, you know, not to mention what happens at the Rapido. I mean, <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, that that is a unit that really gets no slack in terms of entering no, combat. I mean, it's 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 breathtaking and, it, and and they're not getting slapped because it's italy because it's not the, That's the nature campaign. of it so well, it's just it, make you know, do with what you've got and as we were sort of just discussing this when you were there and and sending us the pictures and the videos and, and whatnot that you were taking there's a couple things that really struck me uh first off how you could be at sort of one summit and in a way you're looking at different phases of the italian campaign you know the mignano yep. gap that's obviously the late fall of 1943, where all this terrible fighting is having Montella Defensa and all that. 
but you could see casino in the distance. You could stand there and see that. Right. And that's really the next phase that's going to go on for what? The next five, six months. I know. And, and so I think that in a way that brings it home to you, uh, just what this was in, in terms of time. But the other thing too, you know, Jim, like you're saying, how do they even take this? Well, to me, it's just sheer determination. And I think it's the, the classic example of how it's not inevitable that the allies are going to win the war because it's not inevitable. You're going to have people who can or will go forward to, to meet those, take those objectives and that people back home are going to be okay with the cost of this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Cause yeah, it's yeah. immense. Listeners will probably know, imagine that we were trading WhatsApp messages while Jim was there and discussing what Jim's impressions were as, as, as he's messaging us from the scene. But I mean, John, you said this to me says that this, the, the, the question that the allies winning the war because they have material preponderance is is hugely undermined by this kind of campaigning because your material your material superiority evaporates essentially because of the terrain mm-hmm. and it's down to it's down to g- sort of guts and determination and morale and good training really isn't it it, it is in the end but th- that's what you need to win and just the resolve to continue doing this yeah. and and to to push forward and take these objectives for some sort of larger purpose uh, you know, I'll just give you a parallel. 20 some odd years later, there's some equally really horrendous hill fights in uh, in the Vietnam War uh, yep. that go around around Doc To in the fall of 1967, most famously Hamburger Hill in 1969. The yep. tactical valor is exactly equivalent here. In fact, the military skill, it probably exceeds what you have in Italy at that point in time. So what's different? Um, the society back home isn't as willing to go forward and, and do this because they're like, what's the point of this? What's the purpose of it? And in the case of the the, uh, the hill fights in Vietnam, it's like, well, what's the, the sort of strategic purpose? What, there's, a, there's an aimlessness about it if you're taking a hill and then giving it up. Right. That's what's different in Italy. We're taking the hill and we're keeping it because it's towards this larger purpose of getting to Germany, hopefully, yeah. um, and taking down that Nazi regime, which is which there's enough unity in these very fractious societies to, to, to continue with that particular objective. Yeah. And that's no sure thing. You know, if you, if you're just going to stay there and bleed to, to you know, to, and, and we stay in the Magnano gap or we stay at Monte Cassino and nothing much happens. I mean, what does that mean for the Europe first policy or, you know, uh, just, just the idea of unconditional surrender and, and what you want out of this war. Yeah, um, and, and and so I think when you start to think about it that way, you can really then sympathize with the Allied commanders who are in that spot, and like, how in the world do I deal with this uh, without completely losing my command here and yeah. and suffer a defeat? Because after all, after all, the the, the and because divisions are about are going to be, or at least British manpower at least is being drawn off for north northwest Europe that you're having to do it all on a shoestring as well. I mean, that, that's the, the, the other thing. So how do you maintain, because you've got to keep going forwards, haven't you? The, 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 unconditional surrender means nothing if you're fighting at stalemate. It, it, it's, it's not worth a hill of beans, is it? You have to be mm-hmm. going forward. You have to be defeating the enemy for unconditional surrender to be at all meaningful as a way of going forward, don't you? Otherwise, why yeah. not? Otherwise, you may need to negotiate, you know, if you're stuck. This is, of course, a mass media war with yeah. global mass media. Yeah. So German propaganda can seize on any perceived allied reversal, which later they'll do at Anzio, for instance, 
um, you know, they're saying, okay, well, you know, we've just won this great victory. Uh, you know, and that can certainly the rally the German public on some levels too. Yeah. Uh, and shape world perception. And, you know, we, we're thinking it, of course, from our point of view as Americans and Britons. Uh, but of course, what, what impact does it have on, on countries that are sort of caught in the middle and which diplomatic side they're going to take? Um, yeah. you know, whether, whether we're talking about Bulgaria or, um, Sweden or right. Switzerland or, you know, name a country. You know, so name so co- this is, you know. this is why you've got to maintain the initiative. Absolutely. You, you've got, you've got, you've got to keep going. You can't just, can't just go, okay, do you know what? We'll just set this one out. Because the other point is, is if you sit it out, then then you know there's every chance that the the enemy might go, the Germans might go. Well, hang on a minute. Well, let's just sort of mass overwhelming strength here, uh, and attack. Yeah. Because if they're just sitting it out, then clearly they're not going to be doing any amphibious invasion elsewhere. So that means we don't need to keep people up in the north, and we yeah. can just go all out and and try and smash it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's German doctrine anyway. The counterattack, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. interesting. There doesn't seem to be any talk of counter. I mean, they they are talking about counterattacks. The counterattacks they're talking about are kind of sort of localized. I don't know. I I I just I was just was just dumbfounded by by how they're even attempting to fight through this. You know, attack up the, the, these cliffs and stuff. It's just absurd. Well, which raises the question though: the Germans are supposedly good at war tactically. They're supposedly great at defending. This terrain sounds um, ideally suited to defense. That if if you've got hilltops and almost you know and and every single hill every single hill has a restricted approach because of the terrain that you you know that you know you can enfilade that you know you can control and all that sort of stuff and your your, your defensive points going to work in you know helping each other and all that sort of in support of each other why how why aren't the Germans doing better how are the Allies able to maintain this forward motion given you know because because it sounds like a terrain that were the doughty British infant Tommy defending it, he'd be unmovable in it, you know, as the, to, 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 to go with another cliche. So what's going on? Why are the Germans finding this so difficult? Because, because obviously there's the, obviously there's the needs must for the, for the Western allies that, that, that it makes no sense for them to be doing this unless they're going forward. You know, that the, the forward motion is an end in itself because it just sort of justifies why you're there and and all those other things. Why are the Germans, why are they losing? What's going on? Because they're supposedly better at this. They're good at this. I, I think in part of it, it's it's because of the mismanagement of, of the divisions that are coming through. So you've got 14th Army by this stage up in the north, north of Rome, really, and around Rome, but north of it, and mainly kind of holding that in case of amphibious operations or in case they suddenly need to kind of be parachuted into, well, not literally parachuted, but kind of, you know, brought into the Balkans or whatever. Uh, um, so they're sort of keeping that upper half part of, 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 of Italy. Uh, it doesn't seem to be considered that, that actually the Allies might have sort of largely shot their bolt in terms of amphibious operations in the Mediterranean. Uh, and the main thing is, is because Kesselring has had this, this big, ba- you know, battle, internal battle with Rommel about control of Italy and has, has emerged as Supremo at the beginning of uh, November, if I remember right, yeah, that he finally comes out on top. I think it's like 6th of November is when, when, when Rommel's, uh, when, when Hitler's okay, is, okay, right, we're going to dissolve Army Group B. That can move to the, you know, Rommel can go and do an inspection of the Atlantic Wall and you're, you're now in charge. Because of that, suddenly the Hitlerian spotlight is on him. And that means your 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 ability to manoeuvre and your ability for tactical flexibility is severely restricted because you can't just pull back. You've got to kind of stick it out. And so what they're doing is 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 they're stretched and they've got they're they're 
filling in with penny packets. So division arrives, and as soon as it arrives, it's flung into it without proper reconnaissance, without proper planning, without proper warning. It's suddenly in action, and it's coming against a full weight of Allied artillery. Um, and when the sun is shining, or, or rather when it's not raining and the cloud isn't too too low, you know, Allied air power. The amount of firepower that the Allies are, bring to, are able to bring to bear is worse than the Germans are to the allies and in that terrain that's brutal even if you're dug in because of the lack of soil and because of the splinters of rock and all the rest of it and so the wear and tear is just just immense and and i just don't think kesselring and by default von weitinghoff and then lemelson who takes over because von weitinghoff gets uh, gets ill of temp of the german 10th army i don't think they marshal their troops very well so the 65th division for example arrives it's not very good it's full of sort of ost battalions these these battalions full of poles and checks and what have you you don't really want to be there totally conscripted have no interest in the you know greater right whatsoever they're flung into battle on the adriatic side uh, kind of you know on the Sangro and the Moro and, and River Moro and around Ortona, and they're totally destroyed. But, you know, there is no way that an Allied commander would allow an entire division to be destroyed in a battle. It's just not going to happen. You know, it might be bald and it might be badly biffed about and, and uh, you know, and some of its rifle companies be decimated, but it is not, you're never going to get to a situation where you're allowing an entire division to be destroyed. So the 65th Infantry Division is basically in, in the line for two weeks and then it's stuffed, it's, it's gone. It's completely gone because it's just annihilated. Well, that's and that's an example. And of I don't a think that's issue. very good management, personally. No, it isn't. But it's an example of the larger issue the Germans are up against is they're stretched thin. Uh, yep. You know, they're they're. I have to start thinking at that point about the possibility of an Allied invasion of France, the so-called Atlantic Wall. Yep. Of course, the the war in the Soviet Union is absorbing practically everything. Um, yep. They've got people in Norway. They've got people bogged down in the Balkans fighting what is overlooked part of World War II, the, the guerrilla war in Yugoslavia. Um, you know, so there's only so many people they can throw at this uh, this issue in in uh, in Italy, and you know, and the whole Aussie side of it is a good example. They're they're having manpower issues, but 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 the, the but the area of Italy that's of strategic importance is south of Rome. The area of strategic importance to the Germans. Is the Foggia airfields for sure? Because the one thing they're paranoid about is is Allied air power and Allied strategic air power and, and the closing of the of the of the noose around the Reich and all the rest of it. I mean, that's why Hitler's so paranoid about the southern flank, and yet they kind of let that go with basically without a fight. And so, what's the point of fighting south of Rome? Okay, it means they keep Rome and they hold up the Allies, but but there's holding up the Allies. There's a point where. The holding up the Allies, the, the benefits of holding up the Allies south of Rome is doesn't equal the negatives of losing this amount of manpower because an alternative is to very slowly retreat in stages whilst all the time preparing the Gothic line. Once you've got the Gothic line, which is sort of runs from kind of Pisa to Rimini, so is you know 150 miles or so, 200 miles north of Rome, that means your lines of supply are shorter. doesn't make any odds to the strategic air force because you've already lost You've already lost Foggia. So why wouldn't you do that? And then you're maintaining a sense of balance and you're maintaining your very stretched manpower much more effectively than you would be if you're doing this kind of attritional, I'm not going to give an inch kind of mm -hmm. policy, which just seems insane to me. Yeah. Well, that's very Hitlerian. I'm not going to give it's an very inch. Hilarious. I think and that's, the, that's the, the and answer. that's where Kesselring gets hoisted by his own petard because by by making this such a big deal and saying no 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 we can fight for every yard you know we can fight south of Rome you know he's 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 saying the kind of he's speaking the language that Hitler wants to hear Hitler comes out in his favor 
But the negative of having Hitler coming out in your favor is that Hitler's spotlight is then on you, which then restricts your ability to maneuver. And you have to basically do what Hitler's concept is, which is generally to defend every foot of ground. Now, of course, there's the the prestige objective of Rome, which, you know, impacts the other sort of subjective uh, aspects of the war we were talking about. Um, but of course, they they succeed to some extent in stalemating the Allies after they after the Allies get Rome anyway. In, in some ways, you know, right? So <laughs> absolutely. But also, up until Kesselring fights, you know, Kesselring and Tenth Army fight fight very effectively south of Rome. There's no there's not even a consideration of keeping Rome. You know, mm. the original plan is to go to the Bees of Rimini. So they've already yeah, psychologically right. made that leap once. So why not just make it again? The, the whole campaign is just so crazy. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. At, at this stage, though, Jim, is it cost, it's costing the Allies more than the Germans, isn't it, in terms of manpower to move forward? The Germans are defending and giving things up. Because, for instance, oh, I don't you know, know. I don't know, know actually. You know, well, the battle at the Rapido River, the, the, the Americans you know suffer much greater casualties than the than the, the germans do don't they so yeah but up to that point i mean you know the uh, there are i think it's in the 15th panzer grenadier division you know by the time monte camino is finally given up on whatever it is the 9th 10th of december 1943 mm. you know you've got forward companies with 16 men left yeah so they're getting they're getting sort of so, so, so the rapido in, in is a moment where that the Texans get hurt more than the German defenders, but for most of the time, that's absolutely not the case. Right? You know, the German okay. the Germans are on the defence and they're still getting slaughtered. You know, 90th Panzer Grenadier Division goes onto the Ortona Front, basically destroyed. 65th Infantry Division goes onto the Ortona Front, totally destroyed. I mean, <laughs> that's two divisions just gone. Hmm. Well, you know, and, and that's decimated. what the Germans are used to at this point because that's what was happening in Russia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which yeah, then yeah. means they scrape for manpower, which means, okay, then they're going to throw Aussies at the problem. Yeah. Um, and so we see that, actually, we see that in Normandy, too. So yeah. it's it's all kind of interrelated, I think. But you, you know what I think would be very interesting is if somebody who really, you know, really has a good grasp of the uh, German doctrine and obviously German source material, if they would write a history of uh, basically German engineers in Italy, in the Italian campaign, because to me... It's an engineer's campaign. I mean, oh, the, the mines, the booby traps, the fortification lines. From the perspective of an Allied soldier dealing with all this, it is incredibly formidable. Um, the destruction of the lines of communication as they retreat north, all of this that's going on is really, on some levels, masterful. Uh, the use of terrain is just unreal. Well, which, and it, which, again, makes it all the more remarkable that the Allies are able to continue forward motion and so I'm showing a picture now of a of a Dodge WC fifty one on a mountain pass and a British soldier looking down at <laughs> over precipice over what used to be a road. It's just completely and totally gone. I mean, one of the guys I've been following in my book is a is a is a German um, combat engineer in the in the first Fallschirmjäger division, first paratroop division, uh, and his description. I mean, he's he's his descriptions of how they lay these mines and what mines where they put them and how they do it and why they do it and the way they do it is astonishing and you're and you're absolutely right john it's it's incredible 
the scale of the demolitions. That, that's, that's what it's all about. But that's sort of signing my point. So if you're doing that, why do you need to do create these, you, you know, the Bernhard line and the Gustav line and, and, you know, make them, put them in, you know, defend them for a bit and then, then pull back, you know, make it because the demolitions alone are just going to hold everybody up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. The fact maybe that could have been done more efficiently to save more German manpower. Right. I mean, that, that maybe that would have been a better way to manage their, their sort of human resources. Right. Um, they're not very good at that by this point in the war. Well, are they caught, are they caught in that trap that if you're not taking casualties, you can't be trying? You know, the, the, there's, cause there's definitely, there's definitely that issue in the, in Soviet, uh, circles, isn't there? That if a divisional commander, you know, isn't, if his men aren't bleeding enough, he, he can't be applying himself properly to the problem, as it were. I mean, if the Germans got themselves into that, um, mindset that you know if you're not if you think you can't be fighting if you're not taking casualties the way around the allies are trying to do it is to avoid that but Definitely. i wonder if the, if, if the germans have found themselves in that you know in that basically in that trap that 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 a spirited defense which involves lots of people getting killed and injured shows at least you were trying rather than conserving your manpower being careful and taking care of people yeah and, that, and i think that that's an offshoot of the totalitarian mindset yeah completely you know what I mean? Yeah. These individuals don't matter at all. What matters is the larger whole. And certainly the, the, <laughs> the Soviet regime very much believes that and fights that way. And I think I think Nazi Germany is doing the same thing, much to its detriment. And, you know, and also let's think about it from a Western allied perspective, engineers perspective. So, you know, Missouri S&T or I teach is a STEM focused school. So when I talk about the Italian campaign with my students, many of whom will be engineers, including civil engineers, some of them. Um, I say, well, really, this is an engineer's proposition from Sicily on, because think about all the destroyed bridges, how much bridging you have to do, how many water sources of whatever that you have to cross, um, that you've got to figure out the bridging, uh, you've got to figure out uh, how to how to clear the road net. I mean, you've all seen, of course, the, the World at War series, the one tough old gut. And if you've seen some of the footage there where you just see these completely destroyed towns and mountainsides with rubble everywhere, and, and it's like, and, and you see some trucks moving through places they've cleared. And to me, that sort of sums up this phase of the Italian campaign from an allied perspective to a T. It's just a mess. Um, and so an engineer has to deal with that and the weather problems that you've got, washing your bridge away, the mud, the lack of infrastructure, the mountains. Um, how do you deal with that? Much less all the booby traps and the mines and the explosives. Yeah. It's kind of staggering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we were talking well, about this the other day, weren't we? We were saying, actually, that I mean, you're saying that the most important person was the German engineers. I would just say engineers full stop. It's an engineer's battle in a way. It is. Because, you know, the bridging that goes on, you know, the guys and presumably the guys manning the bulldozers, they're engineers as well, are they? I don't know. Are they? Presumably. Usually. Yeah. yeah I mean, you're, so they're you're like, engineers. Yeah, because, I mean, that's who's equipped with the, with the dozers most of the time. Right. Is an engineer unit of some sort. And on all the different kinds of engineers. And, and then it gets back to the whole kind of morale issue again, because obviously fighting in the, this, this terrain and these circumstances is just totally dispiriting because, you know, all you're looking at is destruction and wrecked lives and, and broken things and smashed cities. And well, it's disillusioning. I mean, it's, it's, it's disillusioning. disillusioning. If you're an average American or Tommy or Canadian and you've thought of Italy at all, 
you've you've been raised on tales of sunny Italy and and uh, uh, you know, yeah, and you th- you're, you're thinking historic columns, aren't you? And yeah. groves and twinkly Mediterranean and Positano and the Colosseum, beautiful and- places. And and especially as an Italian American, you're thinking, "There's my homeland." And you, you've probably heard all these tales of wonderful Italy and uh, a place of sunlight and olive groves and all this stuff. And instead, it's this grinding kind of mountainous jungle of of detritus and <laughs> destroyed masonry and whatever i think one of the one of the, the 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 great accounts of the italian campaign which sort of gets this across actually is um uh to hallenbach or whatever it's called you know the audie murphy oh yeah yeah definitely and, and it's incredibly emotive and it's grim and brutal and and the privations that they're expected to go through. And there's this one bit around this this period at the kind of end of nineteen forty three. Well, it's December nineteen forty three. And he he it's 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 dusk. And they've just come up. They're near. They're at the foot of Monte Lungo and Monte Rotundo. And between Monte Lungo and Monte Rotundo is this little hill feature called Point One Nine Seven. And it's a kind of sort of square like hill. And Highway 6, the Via Casalina, goes around it. So it's like four parts parts of the square going around this feature between that and, Monte, and the foot of Montelongo. And his squad is sent off on a patrol up this slope on a saddle between Monte Rotundo and this hill 197. And he says, you know, we set off and, you know, it was getting dusk. Uh, and we lost contact with the other, with the rest of the platoon and the rest of the company. Um, but we we came across this this quarry, um, and uh, in the ground, and and to one side of the quarry was a kind of like cave. So we kind of bedded down there for a night and kept watch. And the following morning, they you know the light comes up and the shells are going across them. So they they feel they're quite safe because the artillery fire can't actually get into this little saddle. Suddenly they see this German patrol. They can see the, the, the helmet silhouetted against the sky coming down the hill. And one of their guys is on the BAR, the Browning Automatic Rifle. And Audie Murphy is next to him and just thinking, God, you know, when the hell are you going to open fire? These guys are getting horribly close and they're going to see us any minute. And then the guy lets, lets rip and, you know, a whole load of Germans fall and, and the rest of them surrender. Three of them are really badly wounded and two are young. And one is, one is a kind of sort of older guy, middle aged guy. And they pack off one of their men with, with the prisoners and send them back down the line. And the other three, you know, the German men, they, they ask for some, call for some, some medical help, but they're so pressed that, you know, the Americans have got to take priority. And so they've got these three Germans in this cave with them who are just dying. And it takes them sort of 36 hours for these poor blokes to die. Anyway, I found, I found the quarry and I found the cave and, and, and there it is. And so I, you know, I went over with a friend and so I said, okay, look, I, I can't quite see how, where the guy with the BAR would have been because surely he'd have been seen by these, these Germans. So I was doing it in the afternoon and the sun by that point was kind of behind me. But, but obviously it would have been on the other side first thing in the morning because obviously it rises in the east so it would be in the other side of monte rotundo in the in, in first thing in the morning and anyway i got i got my friend to kind of stay at the edge of the cave and i did the reenactment of the germans walking down this slope you couldn't see him could not see him at all added a whole level of it's verisimilitude the right word i don't know what it whatever whatever you know it it, it backed up audie murphy's dis- description perfectly and you could just in our fault. And, and and I have to say, you know, it's a dismal little cave. You know, so so, so it's this sort of quarry is a big sort of 
tennis court size quarry, a kind of sort of remains of an old lime kiln at, at kind of one end. And the cave is down on the, on the, you know, as you're looking up towards, you know, the casino, Rome direction. It's on the right hand side and it's sort of stuck into the kind of cut away from the wall of the quarry. And it's a really pronounced cave. There's no getting away from it. You know, you'd be, you'd be safe from the rain in there and all the rest of it. But, you know, to stand in there knowing that this was the spot where these three Germans lost their lives, where Audie Murphy was and all the rest of it, you know, it was really moving and it was just horrid. I mean, it was just a really grim little corner and, and, and really moving, you know, you know, really put the hairs on the back of your neck. To Hell and Back is, a, is an incredibly overlooked to hell and back, that's it. Um, war memoir. It is tremendous. Just because yeah, I'm written, Murphy, written immediately is, after the end of the war. Yeah, right. It's so very fresh. And it's, you know, because Audie Murphy's larger than life in a way is this war hero or whatever. But when you kind of step aside from that is an incredibly moving, honest, kind of grim uh, war memoir that I an, think is right up there with the best memoir. of them. It, it really is. Consciously so. There's a lot of kind of, you know, memoirs that came out, particularly in the sort of, you know, second half of the fifties, early sixties. And they're all, they're all quite gung ho, particularly British ones. They tend to be phlegmatic, tongue in cheek kind of, you know. I thought, how dare that Jerry? And so I let him have it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's all very kind it's of very unsporting. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like kind of sort of, it's sort of glib. You know, a, 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 but this isn't. It's it's absolutely brutal and it's completely unsparing. And, and as I say, it's written right at the end of the war. I mean, he must have kept some kind of diary. I think he did. I think he did in terms of like recording his memories. Um, you know, but he, but it's the other thing I love about it. It's not self promoting the way it, it might be for some people who are like societal war heroes and about to become a film star or whatever. It's like it's not like oh, I'm the central part of this whole drama or I am the great hero. It's more like you see Murphy in, in sort of in tandem with his his buddies, especially Kerrigan, um, and and you really see Murphy as a modest figure um, who just sort of it, it's it's really good because it gives you a sense of this guy who's doing what he's doing because he thinks it's his job, sort of his workaday job, um, and 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 also out of loyalty to the guys he's fighting alongside, and eventually responsibility once he starts to move up the ranks and get very well known and get commissioned and all that. So you see this evolution of the person, but there's no sense of self-promotion at all. No, uh, which and isn't there's always no true sense that he's memoir. enjoying it. I mean, you know, he's not one of these adrenaline junkies who, you know, it's kind of Boy Scouts with guns, it's, it's, you know, which, which I always got with someone like George Jellicoe, you know, who was in the SAS and then joined, you know, was then first commander of the SBS. I mean, he just loved it. I mean, he just thought the whole thing was a total blast and never happier than kind of capturing Athens with one other person, that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, totally, totally gung ho. There's none of that. Um, you know, when you're talking about your categories of soldier, kind of A, B, C, D, C being the most common, D being the ones that kind of just run away and can't cope, A being the total adrenaline junkies, and and, and the Bs being your kind of your backbone, the, the ones who don't want to be there but will do that extra yard, the kind of platoon sergeants and so on. That's the category that Audie Murphy's in. It's harrowing, you know, it's, it's, it's searing and, and, you know, people come and go, people get killed and, and it's just incredibly matter of fact. Oh, and, yeah. You know, and he's, and he's unsparing the in the descriptions of these people's deaths, you know, the jerking of the bodies, the kind of legs bent back hideously, you know, the bleeding out everywhere, you, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's so kind of graphic in a kind of 20 minutes of saving private Ryan opening, opening bits kind of way. That's what it always reminds me of. It's, it's, it's that in book form. The film is 1955, and the book came out. The book came out in 49. Interestingly, 
I mean, it's, okay, I mean, so it's, it's amazing that he went on to have a proper movie career after it. I mean, it, it, it just seems quite extraordinary. And that he would star in a, a film of his own book as himself. I mean, it, it's all that's all kind of peculiar, isn't it? Uh, especially given how warts and all the book is, that you then allow it to sort of transmute into a Hollywood product is, I think, quite... That's quite that's quite interesting, but but probably probably for another 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 podcast altogether. So, Jim, would you would you say that having looked at the terrain, the thing you could conclude is that the Allies maybe hadn't looked too closely at the Italian terrain when they decided to embark on the invasion of Italy? No, I think I think there's a, there's a lot of sort of on a, on a high, you know on a wish and a prayer, and, and I think. I think they go in thinking they're going to get more out of the Italians than they do or hoping they're going to get more out of the Italians than they do. I think they go in on the assumption that the, the Germans will probably abandon Rome and, you know, well, do be the a sensible thing we've been talking about, which is to, to delay in stages and move back and not, not expend people in vast amounts and do the, do the rational thing. They're doing the, it's the old allied mistake. Soldiers assume soldiers will, generals assume other generals will behave like them, don't they? That they're, they're people like us, aren't they? The other, the opposite, our opposite numbers. They've got this, this very, very spurious intelligence, which goes back to May, where they've picked up a message which says, suggests that the Germans will, you know, in the case of invasion, the Germans would retreat to the Pisa Rimini line. So, you know, well, well north of Rome. There is no other intelligence break on this at all to, to, to suggest this, the Germans are going to do this between May and the invasion at Salerno on the 9th of September 1943. What there is, confirmation from General, General Castellano, who is one of the mediators, one of the guys sent to kind of negotiate the, the armistice terms, who says, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what the Italians are, 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 are I mean, the Germans are, are intending. You know, I heard this at a meeting where they absolutely said this is what they were going to do. Right. Take my word for it. Right, but but there's nothing more than that. And what's really interesting is in the in the run up to it, where they're coming up with a final plan, and there is this, you know, the whole ideas for Italy has has mutated from let's go into Corsica and Sardinia, and maybe just a little bit into the toe, you know, into the boot, um, to an invasion around Naples, south of Rome, which is what what Operation Avalanche, the, the 9th of September landings are. Between that level, Eisenhower is repeatedly going back to the combined years and going, I just want you to know our intelligence about what the Germans are going to do is pretty flaky. You know, it, it, there's, there's quite a lot to suggest that we're not going to get tactical surprise. There's, there's, there's very little hard evidence to say they're going to retreat north of Rome, you know, hand on, you know, cards on the table. We've got to go into this with our eyes wide open. But but momentum is is political momentum and, and strategic momentum has overtaken such concerns, and, and and they're committed. And you know Montgomery's force goes over on the third of September. So you know between the third of September and, and the six days, in best part of a week, it's already happened. You know it's 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 in motion. And there's this you know as I was as I was saying to you earlier. I mean you know a few weeks ago, the incredible thing is that actually Hitler was intending to retreat to the Peace of Rimini line. On the 9th of September, was intending to enact that. He was going to tell the Italians, right, you've got to stay in the southern part of Italy because we're bugging back out to the Peace of Rimini line. And that was going to be his instructions on the 9th. So had the Allies landed a few days later, that's what would have happened. And it would have been easy peasy. 
So to cut a long story short, no, they absolutely had not envisaged fighting in the mountains on Monte, top of Monte Samucro or Monte La Defensa or Monte Camino, et cetera, et cetera. So how are the Allies going to know what the Germans are going to do when the Germans themselves don't know what they're going to do? Yeah. So that's part of it, and to me. That is an excellent point, John. Um, because after all, really what um, uh, intelligence can offer you this, at this point is what people's strengths are and what their what their what their deployments are and who's on their way who's on their way east and who's on their way down to Italy what it actually really can't do is tell you what the what the germans will do in the event of things kicking off it can't it can't really offer you truly what um german intentions are in this situation can it that that that's the that's the thing i think people sometimes you know uh, misjudge about about what ultra's telling you ultra's telling you who's where and how many of them there are and what strength they're probably at and rather than what the plan is necessarily. And intentions. Um, you, yeah, exactly. It doesn't offer you strategic insight necessarily. It offers you rough guesses. And like you say, if the Germans don't know what they're going to do, how can how can the, the, the British and the Americans possibly have an inkling? The decision-making process and, and, the, and the recklessness with which the Allies go in for the Salerno landings is just... I, I'm still reeling from that. You know, a classic just, example I of it all. I cannot get over it that they would risk what they risked. They pulled it off. But but the flip side of pulling it off was November, December on the Bernhard line. You know, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's the payoff. In terms of the risk, the classic example of it all, what they were going to risk, what they were thinking of risking, and the example of not really knowing what was going on, is even thinking for a minute about Operation Giant 2. The idea yeah. of dropping the 82nd Airborne Division around Rome. Oh, um, man. You know, d- d- we yeah. would have lost the 82nd Airborne Division. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it almost happened. I mean, yeah. it, it, it went down to the last minutes. So, yep, yep. again, we were talking about Castellano earlier. You know, assuring the Allies, oh, don't worry, the Germans aren't really going to be there in force. It's no big deal. We just we and, and what they want is they want the Allies to basically protect their hides from German, yeah. you know, vengeance. I guess we would say. Uh, so they think the eighty second Airborne Division can accomplish that by securing Rome for them. Uh, when you know, obviously Maxwell Taylor goes in there and surreptitiously and figures out there's multiple German divisions in the neighborhood yeah. here, which is, you know, a good indicator <laughs> that there's going to be a problem. But, 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 but because of all this sort of Masteroika stuff, all this sort of cloak and daggers that's going on with no one telling, neither side during the negotiations between the Italians and the Allies saying, laying their cards on the table, what the net result was, there was this enormous gulf between what the Allies thought the Italians were capable of doing and what they might do and what the Italians thought the Allies were going to do and what they were capable of. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's everyone hoping for the best. We were going to talk about Bougainville. Yeah, <laughs> we but- were, but we can do that the next time, I think. This is just too interesting right now. <laughs> Plenty of time oh, for that, dear. right? <laughs> yeah. uh, we got the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think what we've done is we've we were intending to talk about two subjects today. We've succeeded in talking essentially about one with the odd digression. which we hadn't intended to talk about at all, really. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes that's half the fun, the spontaneity that's of that, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly yeah. right, John. Um, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. See ya.